welcome to Ogilav Nanagus. Conversations about Irish mythology with the story archaeologist Chris Thompson and Isolde Carmody at www.storyarchaeology.com. Series 4, Rowing Around Imrama. Episode 9, Mungon and his missus. Cumbert Mungon of the Sherk Drivalacha the Mungon. Malanan speaks. You see me here. I stand before you as I approach the mortal world. I will come to the woman who waits in Moyleni. I will come at last to her own home. For I, Malanan of the line of Lear, will take to my chariot in mortal form to where my son will be conceived, sculpted to mortal fair perfection. For I, Maranan of the line of Lear, will lie with the queen in mutual tryst, and the child, called by us to the beautiful world, acknowledged by Fichtner, his mortal father. He will melt the heart of every she, the darling boy of welcome lands. He will know secrets and make them known, fearless in all the fearful world. He will take the shape of every beast, beast of the blue sea, beast of the land. He will stand as a dragon at the battle line and the wolf in the heart of the forest. The antlered stag all silver-tined on the chariot road crossed plains of men. The speckled salmon of the deepest pools, the seal in the sea and the fair white swan. Known throughout the lengthening days, a king who reigned one hundred years as a warrior, strong and fierce and fatal, his battlefields left rutted red. His birth shall be of the highest rank, his death the deed of a bastard son. Yet I, Mananan of the line of Lear, will guide, will teach, will foster him. So, in the first episode of this series, mm. you remember we met Bran McFevel, and he was out on his own in Roth, wasn't he? Yeah, it does feel like rather a long time ago at this stage. Now, that one was a bit different from the others. I mean, he didn't set off for a penance like the Ikora. No, but uh, nor did he set out to seek vengeance for his father's death like Whaledoom did. Yeah, or like Ty, for instance. Yeah. Well, in Imrov Bran, Mananorn seems to make Mungon an offer that he couldn't refuse. Uh, although he does this in concert with an otherworld woman. And this otherworld woman just shows up one day in the middle of Bran's house and flings a silver branch at him and says she's then going to chant 50 quatrains. <laughs> Thankfully, we don't have all 50, but she does spout poetry at him anyway, describing the other world she wants him yeah, to visit. And this other world is so clearly the one that's become familiar to us all the way through the series yeah. of Dumrama. I mean, there's no sickness, mm. no original sin. Yeah. How does it go? Oh, yeah, without grief, without sorrow, without death, without any sickness, without debility. Yeah. And, of course, this is a bit different because she also prophesied the birth of a wondrous child. Yes. A great birth will come after ages that will not be among great palisades. A son of a woman whose partner is unknown, he will take lordship among many thousands. 
Yes. Now, of course, this prophecy could refer to Jesus Christ, and that would be, if you like, the expected wonder yes. child or wondrous birth. The one, that's the one that now the is the top one. Yeah. Exactly. And in fact, you know, the, the scribes of this text seemed very determined that that would be the case. I think it would bother him if it wasn't. Well, yeah, but I mean, so much so that they've got these little notes and glosses right throughout all the poetry, even in the first line of that quatrain mm-hmm. you just read. Sort of a great birth, i.e. Christ. I.E. JC, just in case you didn't get it the first time. And it's full of all of these glosses, and some of them really are, you know, metaphors for idiots. They're sort of explaining it when Manon says that he sees lambs and calves and in the ocean. A gloss explains what Bran actually sees are trout, but they're described as if they are lambs and calves. And you go, you really don't get poetry, do you? <laughs> But the poetry is interesting because although I can quite understand why the monks sort of felt that it had to yeah. be about Christ, mm. in fact, it actually clearly does refer to Mongan. Yes, and even they can't escape that sometimes. Sometimes there is a gloss that says, this time we're talking about Mongan. Yeah, and as we'll see, in fact, the, the, the quatrain that I read... Mm. Although it looks like it refers to Christ, yeah. it actually does refer to Mongo. Yeah, yeah, and I think much more than these glossators Want would it like. To be. Yeah. yeah, but the, and then where the poetry she speaks in the first quatrain seems mm. to have a, a, it almost seems to lay a gesh on Bran. He yeah. can't help but leave. He has exactly. to go at that point. Yeah, and when we were discussing it originally, we felt as though the entire purpose of the Imrov was almost to hear about the foretold birth of this wondrous child, Mungon. You know, we really shouldn't be going through the whole of the uh, voyage again. No, for more details, please refer to episode <laughs> one of the current series. So to sum it up, he yeah. has an exciting voyage, gets to the Isle of Women via the Isle of Joy, of and uh, but he can't ever return to Ireland again. No, the end. Um, I think that for our purposes, the most significant part really is when he does meet with Manon. Oh, yeah. Once the other world woman has tempted <clears> him <throat> out of his comfortable life and onto the way. Timeshare reward, you know. <laughs> well, yes. So Manon is both describing his world, but also kind of saying that he is just at that moment off to Ireland to go and conceive a wonder child. With Fickness. With Fickness' wife. Not Fickness. No, no, no. <laughs> no, they weren't quite that advanced. Uh, but yes, he's, he's off to go and uh, have sex with someone else's wife and then the result will be a, a marvellous child. And yeah. he then, of course, goes on to describe this yeah, wonder child. This, this wonder child, he says, will be a master in both worlds, sort of skilled in wisdom and shape-shifting. Mm. Now, I know we quoted the, the Manonan's quatrain before just mm. the, these two these ones but i think it might be worth putting them in here because i think it's sort of pertinent to Absolutely. what we're talking about yeah. today so he says of this future son he will delight the company of every she he will be the darling of every goodly land he will make known secrets a course of wisdom in the world without being feared he will be in the shape of every beast both on the azure sea and on the land he will be a dragon before hosts at the onset. He will be a wolf of every great forest. He will be a stag with horns of silver in the land where chariots are driven. He will be a speckled salmon in a full pool. He will be a seal. He will be a fair white swan. I like those quatrains before. Yeah. And I know we're going to talk about them later. Yes. But yeah. We need to get on with this story. <laughs> yes, we do. We did say we would look at the stories of this wonder child when we've covered 
the Imrama. Yes, and I think we have well covered certainly all the official Imrama and a good few that are not official it's been at all. A longer, it's been a longer series than I think we initially expected. Yeah, many more islands than we had initially thought. It was a surprise. <laughs> we actually have a good few extant tales of Mungan. They're not very well known. They're not. They really deserve to be better known. I mean, there's two stories which have the title of Cumberth Mungan, the conception of Mungan. The one that we're going to focus on today is also about his indispensable wife. There's uh, stories about how he gets one over on poets. Oh, they're great fun. Yeah, he even uh, meets Colm Kill and I think quite baffles him. Um, so it's it's a wonderful range. <laughs> I don't know what he's talking I about. I know, yeah. I think we should come back to that next time. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. So where are these stories found? Um, well, a lot of them are from Leverne the Hudra, uh, which is actually our oldest manuscript which has Irish language content. Um, so it was written, compiled sometime in the 11th century, mm-hmm. but a lot of the language is much older than Yeah, that. there's always this difference between the, the date of the text yes. and the date of the language. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So LU, as it's known, Leverne Hudra, like I say, it's our oldest text with Irish stuff mm-hmm. in it, but the language goes back. And that's good where Brown is, isn't it? Well, that's certainly where the poetry of Brown, I mean, Kuno Meyer reckoned that these um, poems of the woman and of Mananon could be as early as 7th century. They're certainly very good old, old Irish. So this really proves Mongon is a popular hero from a very early period. Yeah, and going on quite late as well, because the text we're mainly focusing on today is in the Book of Fermoy, which is uh, up to the 14th century, that yeah. that was compiled... Not only that, but in the Middle Irish of Verse Laren, which is how Ternizen published the uh, curriculum for poets, yeah, you know, with yeah. the sort of 12 years of study and so on. And that's peppered with sort of little quatrain samplers. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly, of the different metres of poetry. And several of these refer to Mungan. And so I think it must have been a kind of a popular or a standard subject for the composition of so poetry. obviously very well known and very much part of the curriculum. Absolutely. And yet now we barely know anything. Barely know anything about it. Yeah. You know, you might think of Lou, you might think of the Dagda, you yeah. might... But Mungon? Yeah, and I think that we might even have more extant tales around Mungon that we would around Lou, for example, mm-hmm. as another popular hero. Um, and in fact, I think... There's a good bit of discussion there in comparing Lou and Mungon, but uh, maybe save that one. Yeah, we'll save it till we've actually looked at some of Mungon's own stories. For today, we're planning to look at the two texts which describe the conception and birth of the wondrous child Mungon. And is gaining, losing, and regaining of a wife. Oh, yes. Now, when I first read this text, I actually was laughing out loud at large portions of it. I think it is bloody hilarious and I think it's really <laughs> oh, well written. All the Mungan stories are so very entertaining. They are, they really are. And they're very sophisticated storytelling. Yeah, the construction is exceptional. So if you're sitting comfortably, let's begin. So section one is the conception and fostering of Mongan. Yeah. Now, our story starts with Fichtner, a regional king of Ulster, who is on a friendly visit to the king of Lachlan. Uh, now, hang on a second, because uh, a contemporary audience would not have let you get away with that. Oh, they right. need to All know right. who Fichtner is. Is. Well, the whole name and lineage bit. Exactly, exactly. And it would have located the whole tale for them and mm-hmm. all the characters and fitted into the overall structure. Well, go on then, you do it then. Alright, so he is Fiachna Finn, son of Boidon, son of Murakartuk, son of Muraduk, son of Owen, son of Neil. Yeah, you're absolutely right, I know. I mean, names re- reveal so much. I mean, mm. 
I think they're often the most telling artefacts in our story archaeological small finds trade. Yeah. We've got Fierkna the Fair, though. Yes, Fierkna Finn, as you say, yeah. the fair. But it's more interesting just than that because, of course, Fierkna, or in old art, Fiuk, is a raven. Do you know, I think that sounds quite uh, onomatopoeical. Yeah. <laughs> it almost sounds like the sound of a raven. Yeah, the Fiuk. It's got a yeah. lovely hiatus good, in good the middle. That. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, so he is also then the White Raven. Hang on, I thought Bran was a raven, come to think of it. Yes, Bran is a raven. It's another word for a raven. And in fact, there seems to be several very distinct words that do refer to ravens. Ravens are kind of important creatures then. I think so. Yeah, but we... this is for another day. Yeah, that's... <laughs> if we start that discussion, we'll yeah, forget yeah. all about Mongo. <laughs> Yeah, so he doesn't deserve that. tell me about this raven's ancestors. Right, well, he's the son of Boithon, and Boith kind of means, in a fair light, it's an affectionate, but it can also mean idiotic. It's, it almost means... <laughs> son of an idiot. Yeah. Well, an affectionate idiot. Well, it's often um, kind <laughs> of oh, the kind fair. of idiocy of a mother's love, if yeah, you like. So, yeah, yeah. you know, being silly with affections. That's Boithon. Then you get sort of Muirkertach and Muirdach. Oh, They're common good. enough. Yeah. names, you know, particularly within the kind of... The, Sounds the like a sort of a literative pair. It does, in, in a way, you know, but again, the, you've got Owen and Neil, which are also very common as uh, names of people and of kings and what have you. Um, I have not gone through all the annals <laughs> and all the genealogical texts. <laughs> and I don't blame you. And I don't really intend to either. But so the... I haven't kind of gone and looked, yeah. you know, what's the specifics of this lineage. The point is, he's got a good enough lineage mm. to be the human father of this other world child. Yes. You know, the thought comes to me that it's a bit like um, Joseph's lineage in mm. the New Testament, where he his lineage is given right back to David, mm. giving him, uh, you know, the association with the kinship, kingship group. Yes. Or Kinship with the kingship. kingship yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, and in many ways, it's exactly parallel. Yeah, even though Jesus is not supposed to be his biological son, yeah, just he like... has to be of the line of kings. Exactly. He has to have the inheritance of that kingship. And that's exactly what we've got here. Precisely, yeah. No wonder the Christians were worried. <laughs> so let's get on with the yeah. story. Fiacna Finn is on a friendly visit to the king of Lochlan, who in this story is named... Olgargmo. Nice name. Yeah, he's the greatest sort of fierce skill, basically. I mean, but the, the Lachlanic, they're, they're, they're usually the enemy, mm. the others from across the sea, yeah. often equated with the Norse, isn't it? Yes, yeah. Um, but this is clearly a kind of a friendly visit. Mm. And indeed, in the LU, the Leverna Hudra version, um, Fiekna's on a visit to Scotland, which is much kind of closer, much more sort of family relationships uh, so he's a real friend friendly, in Scotland maybe. but either way you know it's a time of truce uh, when there would always have been skirmishes between whatever the Tribal powers groups. were in yeah, the local yeah. area and all is going well till the king gets sick and loses an eye uh, no, no that's the wrong story that's a different story no, no he just gets sick he gets this mysterious mysterious illness and he asks this is the king of Lachlan by the way uh, he asks his physicians and all of the healers of Lachlan to say you know what will cure it the only thing that will cure it is a broth made from one shining 
white red-eared cow. Mm, that's so, interesting. Yes, it's um, not just your average beef tea. White red-eared cows yes. are always other world animals. Absolutely, yeah. yes. The only one they can find is owned by this black cow. Uh, the Kayak Dove. And she's offered four cows, yeah. one for every foot of the cow she's Yes, got. yes, one for each leg. Yeah. Now, she's not sure she's going to get it from the King of Lachlan. No. So she demands that Fekner stand surety for this debt. Yeah, now I think this might be a bit of a pun because uh, I said how Fiuk in Old Irish is raven, but Fiuk is a due, a debt, an obligation. So I think that there's a slight pun there, that if you're called Fiuk, now you're going to have to end up paying people's debts. Yeah, well, it's all in the names. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and after that, Fiekner is called back to do his kinging in Ulster. Yes. And he's there for a year. Well, I presume the King of Lachlan then recovers. Well, our story doesn't relate those details, but uh, it certainly must have worked, because a year later, there's the Kalyak Dove in Ireland beating down Fiekner's door, complaining that the King of Lachlan has reneged <laughs> on his debt. So she hasn't even got four cows. No, no. He starts off by saying, well, since I go surety, I will pay you the four cows myself. No, that's not enough. Well, what about if I give you 20 cows? Nah, well, that's not, not enough. enough either. What about if I give you 20 cows for each leg? Nah, no, not enough. She will only be satisfied with full-on conflict and war. It does seem a bit over the top. Well, yes, but we have to remember that what we have here is a contract over borders and over boundaries, which, again, only kings can make with one another. Um, but it does mean that the only means of enforcing these contracts is through military action. Mm. You know, mm. um, it's the reason why when people make treaties, they swap hostages, mm. all the rest mm. of it, is because really the only recourse is... In an War. international setting as exactly, well. Exactly, yeah. yeah. I was just thinking back, when I was studying well, 17th, 18th, 19th century European history, mm. the most common essay question that we kept getting given was concerned with who holds the balance of power now? You <laughs> yeah, know? yeah. This happens, that happens. Yeah balance of power changes mm. and if I was to apply that question to this situation mm. I should have to answer the Hagkasa power oh yeah she seems to be the one who's setting up this conflict yes I think she really does and what we'll find as we go through this story is that as well as these wonderful names like we will find more ravens as we go more through, birds more birds all together but we're also going to find a series of hags with plans <laughs> so many plans okay <laughs> Now we get to the, what is the strangest part? Yeah. At first the battle doesn't go well for Fickner, and he loses 300 men on the first day of battle. Yeah, and it gets much worse than that, because then the King of Lachlan opens up his tent and out comes a flock of venomous sheep, and they kill 300 warriors every day. <laughs> Mutongaroo! <laughs> the were-sheep of Lachlan! <laughs> Oh, sorry, but what gets me is they don't come out of some dark otherworld entrance. No. They, you know, not, not a cave, they come out of a tent. Yes. <laughs> we did sort of get hints of a story of, oh, of yes. vampire sheep in cavern. cavern. Yeah, but unfortunately it turned out that the sheeps weren't well, vampires. A, it was only 
Charles IV uh, yeah, and yeah. 1930s. And yeah. it wasn't even vampire sheep. No. It was vampires attacking sheep. But I it know. turned out to be a dog anyway. Of course. So it's a really boring story. But it was so disappointing. We thought really? that we might have found more evil sheep. Because they are evil. <laughs> but here we have these were-sheep yeah. coming out of a tent and attacking <laughs> and killing 300 a day. Oh, dear. It's hilarious. It's wonderful. It's, it's completely Monty Python. It is. It's sort of fluffy with the pink. Pointed teeth, killer rats, <laughs> run away! <laughs> you know we shouldn't laugh <laughs> because Fickner is horrified. Yes, death by sheep is just not honourable. No, it's not. <laughs> yeah, he he is utterly shocked by it. He said that you know if his men had fallen in battle, um, then at least they could have been avenged. You know that it would have been an honourable warrior's death. But... <laughs> You. He yeah. bravely calls for his arm. Yeah. And he prepares for death by sheep. <laughs> He's gonna go out and attack them all single-handed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But his his attendants do not like that please, idea. Please don't don't suffer death by sheep. Yeah, no, we'd never live it down. <laughs> and then surprise, surprise, a wonderful shining warrior appears. Oh yes, yeah, very convenient. Lavishly adorned in sumptuous description. <laughs> It actually says, he wore a green cloak of a singular colour and a brooch of white silver in the cloak over his breast and a satin shirt next to his white skin, a circlet of gold around his hair and two sandals of gold on his feet. And sandals again. Why do they always wear sandals? In this climate, it's not bloody likely. <laughs> I think it's just a word that gets used well, for fancy shoes. This, of course, is Mananon himself yes. arriving hot foot, though if he's wearing sandals, cold foot. I'm slightly damp. After his discourse with Bran on the waves. Yes. That's, that, this is the moment that he's actually come. Yeah, narratively speaking, yeah. of course. Let's calm this down. Yes. Look, you tell the story of what Mananon says to Fickner when he finally meets him. Yeah, well, what he says to Fiekner is essentially what would you give if I could get rid of these venomous sheep and Fiekner says anything anything for no more of my men to die in this horrendous and undignified manner yeah, it's so it's the dignity that Absolutely. really Absolutely. yeah exactly it's not a warrior's death so he has now said he'll give anything so the first thing then that this stranger Malanon asks of him is the gold ring from his finger seems little enough of course it seems little enough but he does then explain that he wants it as a token so that he can go to Ireland uh, take Faithness shape and sleep with his wife yeah, right. There's a, there's a little more attached yes. to this ring than just give me a ring. Exactly. Faithner thinks that it's anything now is better than losing well, more of I suppose of he's in the heat of battle yeah. with all his men falling before him. Yeah. Somebody says, I can solve your problem. Exactly. It, 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 yeah. Anything. Anything. Pick anything. So at yeah. that moment, it, it, it's more important. Exactly. And yeah. he does seem to be a sort of caring commander. Definitely, yeah. But we did meet this before. We found this with Fionn when we were looking at the stories of Conan Wilde. There was this real sense of, you know, genuine affection and attachment mm. for the men under his command. Mm. I mean, that is noteworthy in yeah, these stories. I think so. Once the agreement's made, Manalan just produces a venomous hound. Yes. That <laughs> destroys all the sheep. Of course. And a great part of the enemy host. Yes. And the battle's won and Fickner becomes king in Lachlan. And not just that, but also the king over the Saxons and the Britons as well. Lachlan may be full of other world imagery. Yeah. But I think what it's about is territory. Yeah, yeah. I mean... 
after all, why not have your hero become king of the Northlands? And while we're about it, England, Scotland, the Wales as well. Yeah, that's effectively what this is saying. And it seems as though this was part of what the hag wanted, I think, initially, because she gets rewarded with castles and land and a hundred of every kind of cattle. Um, and she's basically deposed the King of Lachlan and set Fiachna up in his stead. Mm. So quite an interesting political mover and shaker there, I would say. Yeah. Um, while Fiachna's celebrating in Lachlan, yeah. a man and Anne has sneaked over to Ulster and the guise of Fiachna's gone and got the Queen pregnant. Oh yes! This is going to be Mongan. And in this version, the Queen's views aren't even mentioned. No, no, they're not. We will hear more from her in when we look at the Leverna Hudra version, which has a different spin to it, but we'll get to that much later on. Before we just finish with this conception of Morgan, yeah. to sum it up, mm. I mean, what you've got is the usual fairy contract. Yes. What would you give me to solve your problem? Yeah. And you have to be aware of saying anything because, of course, then what's asked for is the unthinkable. It's your own fate yeah. you're offering, aren't you? Yeah. Your own future. Yeah. And once you accept the gift, you can never go back to normal. No, no, certainly not. It's like Brown accepting the apple branch. Yeah, and he never goes home again once he's accepted that. You know, it comes right down to sort of what people think of as modern fairy law. Yeah. In the sense of, oh, fairy gold. Yeah, it's very dangerous. Yeah. yeah All these not. ideas we have about the fairy world. Yeah. They've come down right into 18th, 19th century. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and even more than that, I mean, there's echoes in some more modern tellings. I was thinking about Farscape. We often I, do. Yes, well, that's <laughs> what I'm watching at the moment. Again. Again. <laughs> but, you know, you've got someone who spends four and a half series moaning on about trying to get home. And then when he finally gets the means to go home, he finds that he can't. He has changed too much and that's to the ever point. go home. The interaction with the other world changes you. Exactly. It changes your perspective. Yeah. And you can never see the same thing. Yes. Again. And yeah. it's there in the earliest stories, yeah. and there you are, it's still there in Farscape. Exactly. So it's, it's a story trope that we still governs the way we put together a yeah. story. Yeah. The other thing I think that's important is these exchanges are about verbal trickery. Yeah. I was thinking of this one and Cormac. Yeah. It's full of people offering anything, yeah. what they want, and then, as you say, the request becomes unthinkable. Yeah. Like the, you know, Cormac loses his wife and children. Yeah. But there are gifts. In other words, yeah. it, you are changed by it. Yeah. Whether you like it or not. Exactly. Once yeah. you've opened yourself to the possibility yeah. of the other world, Once you say gifts, anything. Yeah. Anything. You're going to get it. The yeah. Of what you ask for. Absolutely, yeah. It strikes me that there are remarkable similarities to the more well-known uh, conception of uh, Arthur. Yeah, I mean, even I saw the similarities and I know absolutely nothing about the Arthurian No one stuff. knows anything about Mongan, but Arthur's much yeah. better known. Yeah. But again, you've got this situation where Uther conceives a passion for Igraina yes. or uh, Igraine. He persuades Merlin to allow him to take his form. Yes. So he can sneak in and conceive a child. Yeah. There, there are distinct similarities. Oh, yeah, yeah. And of course, as you said, the hag gets as much as she wanted. I think so. More than Fiekna bargained for. Oh yeah, I think so. More than the original contract, certainly. I think she gets set up for life. And, and Fiekna gets to go home to his now pregnant wife. Yes, which is all good until three days after the birth of this wondrous child who is named Mungan, the son of Fiachna, Mananon shows up and he whisks this three-day-old newborn baby off to the land of promise until he's 12 years old. Oh, yeah, oh, you know, there again, this is exactly like Arthur. Mm. Merlin turns up uh, in Geoffrey of Monmouth's version, Tintagel, uh, three days after the baby yeah. is born and whisks him away to his own land. He hides him yeah, until he's old enough to yeah. be the king himself. Yeah. So it's a remarkable it similarity. Is. Yeah, it's definitely way too young for this to be standard fosterage. You know, no, the, in, uh, in the institution of fosterage, you have 
you had to be seven. Yeah, the only parallel it. that I can find with yes, Arthur. Yeah. And it's just a very striking parallel. Absolutely, So yeah. obviously these stories, at least there is um, material mm, which these stories have relates in common. to both, yeah. Now we get to meet the rest of the dramatis personae of our sort of slightly complicated story. Yes, <laughs> and indeed the second raven. Aha. And this is another Fiekna. Should I say, ah! <laughs> <laughs> but this is Fiekna Dove, the black raven, where the other Fiekna that we had is Fiekna Finn, the fair yeah. or the white raven. Um, and this Fiekna Dove uh, seems to be a co-ruler with Fiekna Finn of Ulster. They sort of have the province yeah. split between them. And he's given us the son of Devon. So we've got a black wave raven and a fair raven. Yeah. Oh, hang on. Does Devon, do I get it right? Is that demon? I think so. I can't find anything else that it could be. So, yes, he does seem to be black raven, son of a demon. Um, <laughs> okay. But despite this, he does have an entry in the Annals of the Four Masters. Um, he's given as the leader of a particular population mm -hmm. group. Uh, his death is given in, I think, 622. So... You know, it's around the same dates as we have entries for Mungan. Mm -hmm. um, but like I say, it's in the Four Masters, which I pointed out earlier, the Leverna Hudra uh, was to hand when that was being compiled. So these people have importance, yeah. enough importance for euhemerization. Exactly, yes. Now, we also get to meet Fikna Dove's daughter, and she is Dovlacha of the White Hands. Mm -hmm. Now, Dove, again, we've got black, and Lacha is a duck. This is a black duck. Yes, but she has these the White Hands I sort of see as like white wings or possibly just white tips on the wings. But we've got another bird, and it's a water bird this yeah. time. She's born at the same night as Mongan, isn't yeah. she? And she's immediately promised him as wife. So yes. So there is this immediately pairing between yeah. Mongan and the black duck. But there is a third birth on the same night. And busy night. It seems to have been, well, there was a busy night nine months earlier, I would say. Um, and this is at the birth of Makandav to Andav. Now, Andav is the personal attendant to Fiekna Finn, mm -hmm. Fiekna the Fair. And Makandav will become the close companion and confident and uh, attendant to Mungan when he grows up. Pretty central to the story. Oh, he is. It's Before we just go on to the rest of the story, mm. I just want to take a closer look at our characters because they really are a significant loss. Yes. I mean, we've suddenly got two kings, yeah. co-rulers, who are a fair raven and a black raven. Yes. And it's more. Oh, yeah. And then the black raven has a daughter who is a black duck. Um, now, I was sort of looking at this and thinking about this. There's ways in which um, the term fiak or fiak for a raven can mean a water bird. You can have a fiak mara, I think it's fiak rather than the brown. The raven of the sea. Raven of the sea, which is thought to refer to cormorants, you know, which are pretty, you know, huge, dark, terrifying birds. Not a chuff, funnily enough. Which, or a shag. Yep, no, not a shag. <laughs> but, um, you know, so even though fiak primarily means a raven, it does have these other applications for other kind of large birds. birds. So it can be water birds. That's a bit funny. Yeah, it's it sort of grates on the ear somewhat. Even the term lacha, which is the kind of thing you'd She's see a in a child's reader. Yeah. It does seem to have been a positive epithet for women, particularly. So it doesn't carry the same weighting as it does to us nowadays. It doesn't. It would be a bit more like, you know, describing a woman as swan-like, you yeah, know, rather yeah. than duck-like. Duck -like. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that sort of bit 
and waddly. Gaily, yeah, it? no, yeah. it doesn't really. No, it's more the, the bird on the water rather than the bird waddling around. And of course, the, the fair raven has a fair son. I yeah. Mongan, it's usually connected with hair, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, mong is, is the sort of flowing hair. Flowing, abundant, and it has a poetic connection with sea foam. It does, very often, um, as I think we found in the poems of Maranon and, and the woman from Imrov Bran, um, there's this description of, you know, the, the tresses of mm-hmm. the sea and the sort of mong you know, uh, the hair the of the sea, hair of the, the foam of, yeah. of the sea. It's a lovely term. It is, yeah. So that therefore we've got this watery connection with mm. all of them anyway. Exactly, yeah. Um, okay, so what about Andav and Mackandav? Well, are they no birds, are they? No, they're not. They're they're much more interesting in many ways. Uh, Dav is a word that can be difficult to pin down because it seems to equally mean a stag or an ox. Yeah. Um, and it seems to be very kind of context dependent yeah. that if you're in a wilderness, then it's a stag. But if you're in a sort of domestic situation, it's an ox. this time, I'd love to, to be a yeah, stag, yeah. but I think he's an ox. I think so, Because yeah. he's strong and yeah. reliable and yeah. he seems to carry Mungan around in more than one way. Exactly, yes, yeah. So I think we've got the ox and then the son of the ox yeah. attending on Mungo. And that's a good name for a sort of trusted service. Oh yeah, absolutely. So quite a lot of animals. Yeah. And quite a lot of contrasting or matching pairs. Oh yeah. We now come to the next section which I suppose we could title The Death of Fiatna the Fair. Yes, uh, in this Fiatna Dove, uh, the dark raven, surprises Fiatna Finn, Fiatna the Fair, uh, when he's only got a small band around him and Fiatna Dove burns his stronghold to the ground with him inside it. So now we've had one Fiatna killing the other Fiatna. Um, the black has killed the fair. fair. The people now want their hero child. They call for Mungan to be brought back from Manon's fostering. But Manon refuses. And even though he had initially said that he was going to foster uh, Mungan for 12 years, he now refuses to bring him back until he's 16. Yeah, yeah. And by the time he does get back, then everyone, including Fiagna Dove, are anxious for peace. So I suppose... He's trying to increase tension or mm. get Victor of the Black really on edge. Yeah, I just feel it's one of those mysterious things where there seems to be a right time for among them mm. to come back, and it's not yet. <laughs> and we're still on course, sort of with parallels for the story of Arthur, mm. oddly enough. And once again, you know, Uther is, uh, well, he's not very popular, mm. and then he dies, mm. and eh, the country goes to pieces yeah. while everybody's waiting. Who's the king? Well, obviously, we have no sword in the stone, but well, then, no, I don't think that was part of the original story either. Mm. Uh, it's just one very but there are elements yeah and yeah. again i suppose there are strong elements of similarity between Manon and of course Manawithan in the welsh yeah. and they both have similarities with mervyn well now we get another wonderful narrative reflection and mirroring oh yes the incident of the tufty cleric yeah yeah this oh is this one is so funny it is. and the clerics in fact provide a lot of the comedy in this story which yeah. i quite like it's also where we first noticed that the wonder child isn't all there no, he's somewhat away with the fairies. He's got a head stuffed with feathers, or maybe sea foam. Mm. And he certainly comes across as really passive. His father's been murdered. Yeah. And he just does nothing. He shows no inclination for revenge, which, of course, in this sort of story, yeah. you'd expect him to be off there. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, he, his honour demands he avenge his father. Yeah. And he does nothing. Yeah, and in fact, this cleric berates him for sitting there in his silence. Now... Meyer has translated it as inactivity, but I think silence is actually mm. as well. Sort of, why do you sit there saying nothing? He meets this unknown, it's described as a dark, black-tufted little cleric <laughs> who just seems to be hanging around the doorpost. Yeah, yeah. Waiting for him, and then whispers in his ear. Yeah. 
fit because of black. He's only got a small force with him at the moment. Um, why don't we go and um, burn his fortress? Yes. <laughs> but it's Munger's response that gets me. Yeah. I mean, what he says is, there's no knowing what fortune there may be on that saying, oh, cleric. Uh, so we'll go with you. Yeah. It's almost like, oh, yeah, well, whatever. If you're going off to burn somebody to the ground, I might as well tag along. Mm. It's very passive. You know, so of... enthusiastic. Yeah. So <laughs> positive. Proactive, yeah. And then this section of the story just finishes with, and so it was done, and Mungan managed to kill Fiatna Dove, and now he's the king of all Ulster. And, of course, we're told, guess what? The black-tufted cleric is, in fact, Mananar. The great and mighty. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this little tufted cleric is absolutely gorgeous. I mean, he's there, this sort of demonic tempter, you know, leaning on the door frame and saying, Hail Mungan, for he shall be king hereafter. (laughs) (laughs) Well, he's easily led, is Mungan. Yeah. He just is so easy. He's sort of cheerful, changeable, unpredictable and... Frankly, somewhat useless. Yeah, yeah. For this wonder child hasn't turned out to be quite the oh, well, amazing action hero. No, not quite. <laughs> not quite yet. Maranon in this story, he's doing much more of the kind of shape shifting because he's sort of presented himself, turned himself into yeah. this tufted cleric, and he's kind of getting towards his eventual sort of folkloric, folk hero, sort character, of ro- romance yeah. character of the Cairn of Quailrivac, who's the Kern with the narrow striped. Coast. And he does all sorts of uh, tricks. Oh, he does. He, goes, he ends up as a sort of conjurer, really. Uh, absolutely, yeah. He goes around Traveling Ireland anti clockwise, uh, performing tricks and getting one over on all the kings of Ireland. Yeah. So, yeah. Do we even look at those sometimes? Oh, they're uh, great. They're, they're great fun. Stories, but yeah. Not now! No, no, no. <laughs> So the next section is The Swap. <laughs> yeah, okay. Our, our names, by the way. Yeah. This begins with Mongan sort of consolidating his gains by sort of making a progress, not only around his own lands, mm. but around the whole of Ireland. Yes. Well, this would have been quite common because although he's a regional king of Ulster, there are plenty of other kings, as we've said before, all around the country, and there's kings of various grades. So he's kind of trying to establish, you know, is he equal to lesser than, greater than yeah, the other provincial kings. So push himself up the Oh, up the ranking. Absolutely, yeah, yeah of course he does. So there will be place matches with different <laughs> to see him go up. Yeah, yeah. But it it is a way of reordering the status mm, on a nationwide common. basis. Yeah. Now everything's fine until he gets to Leinster. Yes. Now here we've got Brandel Sanovyoku. He welcomes him, but he seems to have another agenda because he oh. just makes sure that Mongan gets to see his wonderful 50 white red-eared cows, mm. each with their own car. Of course. And of course, Mongan just drools over this. He, yeah, he seems to be quite quite the typical Irish farmer. And in fact, uh, Brandel kind of comments to him, oh, I see that you are in love with the cattle, O King. <laughs> and not mentioned in any dodgy way, but just in the way of, Oh, yeah, he you just know, knows he's going hooked. Absolutely, you know, yeah, He can't yeah. take his eyes off them. Yeah. And I mean, Mongan just falls straight into a trap and he yeah. says, well, apart from the Kingdom of Ulster, I never saw anything that I'd rather have. Yes. And he's just longing for these cattle. Yeah, yeah. And the next thing is that Brandover suggested, what, well, what, well, since these are the most beautiful cattle in Ireland, I suppose I could exchange them for, I know, the most beautiful woman in Ireland. Mm. And that would be, let me see, mm. oh, it would be Dovlaka. Yes. <laughs> but Mungan just agrees to this. Yeah. You know. <laughs> Yeah, and what's more, Brandov has sealed it by insisting that this is an exchange that should be made under 
friendship without refusal, which is again, it's a kind of a treaty of equals, you right. know, so that you, your allies and therefore anything that your ally asks for, you have to give. So it's a binding agreement. Absolutely. He's really fallen in it. Hasn't I know. He? Yeah. <laughs> so Mungan trots off home, and his fifty white red-eared cows and all of their lovely calves behind him. Dovlaka, when he gets home, she's very impressed with these and knows these are very special cows. But she's also deeply suspicious and wants to know exactly what he's paid for them. <laughs> right. Now, you'd expect that Dovlaka would just explode when she finds out yeah. what he's done. But it's odd. She just takes it in her stride. No. It's almost as though she goes, oh, he's done it again. Yeah. <laughs> what am I going to do this time? Exactly. I know. She doesn't even panic or protest when Brandov then shows up to claim his payment for this herd of cattle. Yeah, it's Monka gets angry yeah and he sort of blusters wildly oh i've never heard of anyone giving away his wife yeah um Dovlaka's response to this is doesn't matter whether you've never heard of it it's happening <laughs> and what's more you should go through with it because honor lasts longer than life yeah you know so she seems to have some idea up her sleeve of what she can do about it yeah it's almost as though you'd almost think that Dovlaka had actually planned the whole thing yeah the way she reacts and and how she handles her husband and Brandon. yeah um, she's extremely quick thinking. Oh, she is. She is. Um, and so much so that when she does go over to Brandov, she has this kind of promise that she will then extract from him. She says, you know, don't you know that half of Ulster is already in love with me and they'd all have me if I hadn't already sworn myself to you, oh, Brandov. And what's more, I think that my love for you is so extraordinary and so overwhelming that we shouldn't be in the same house for a year <laughs> overnight and that if we are in the same house that we shouldn't sit beside each other because otherwise oh, I'd won't... be overcome uh, yeah, I wouldn't yeah. get to control myself <laughs> exactly yeah yeah so uh, it's a very nice little trick and she does get brand of to agree to this so yeah. she's got a year in which he can't lay hands on her. And he makes her. quite a sort of serious promise on this, doesn't oh, he? Oh, yeah. It's a good plan, isn't it? It is, yes. <laughs> now, Dove Lockout seems to be completely in control of the situation here. Um, she has managed to secure a delay of a year to give her husband a chance to get his act together. Well, the men are being swept around by their hormones. Exactly, yeah. So she keeps a level head on her. Yeah, she really does seem to be moving the plot and mm. laying out the framework. Yeah. I mean, Munger's just hopeless without her. I know, yeah, you just can't do anything without her. While you've been talking, it struck me, I can't find any parallels with Arthur, mm. but you've got another story which is put together about around the same date, mm. and that's the really well-known story of the Welsh story of uh, the marriage of Rhiannon. Yes. Um, and she's been given a suitor she doesn't like, mm. and uh, it's a long story, but she <laughs> yes. meets Puch, and she goes, yeah, I think I've quite like to marry him mm -hmm. and she sets it up with her father to swap suitors yeah until Puck comes along at the on the marriage day yeah and they're about to get married mm. when all of a sudden her ex-suitor turns up and goes can I have a favour and Puck is so excited he goes yeah you can have anything yeah. <laughs> so, so Will says I'll have the marriage free spirit. yeah and this includes the bride of course yeah and in fact um she's put in exactly the same position yeah sort of like it saying i can't do anything about this yeah you're going to have to officially give me to him for a year yeah but don't worry we'll sort out the problem later on yeah um so we've got a distinct parallel absolutely yeah yeah um yeah i find that an interesting one mm. there's still more to say though about the names of our protagonists oh yeah i got this one yeah <laughs> <laughs> even with my limited marriage i know that Brandov is another black raven it is another black raven and what's more is the son of a horse <laughs> 
Okay. Yeah. There's loads of animals in this story. Yeah. Well, this incident also parallels really quite neatly the very first part of the story when Mungan himself was conceived. We once again have someone who says that they will give anything in exchange for what they want. And of course, that anything turns out to be the wife. Without you know? knowing the price. Exactly, yeah. And we've also it's got this repeat motif of the other world cattle. Yes. Well, we call yeah. them other world cattle, but I, there's always a tradition that exactly. if you have white animals with, with red, red ears, ears or yeah. red heads, yeah. then they are from, from the other world. The she world. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So, you know, there's so much it seems to be all happening again, but Mungan doesn't seem to have learned anything from yeah, it. This is all about mirrors and parallels. Mm. Every part of the story matches and yeah. parallels the next. And I think that really helps with this sense of it being a well constructed story yeah so the next section happens at the end of the first quarter after he's lost his wife yes so this is three months later and poor mungan he just gives up and does absolutely nothing yeah it's worse than that though he is now afflicted with this terrible wasting sickness now this is the love sickness and we have measured before for example what happened to aideen's brother-in-law mm-hmm. that he suddenly you know couldn't do anything at all and we know what the usual cure is of course for a for a love sickness is that you know you need to Do be... women get love sickness? It tends to be men. It does. Kukulun does say, it, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, gets and it. it just, just gets it. It just lays them out. I know. They just can't out. cope whatsoever. <laughs> but at the same time, we do get to hear about uh, Macandav at last. Yes. And what he gets up to. Yes. Now, the problem with Macandav is that he points out that he's got a real grievance. Oh, yeah. And it's it's really bad, actually, because his wife is Dovlaka's personal maid. Yeah. And, of course, she's gone to Leinster with her mistress. And she's described as Dovlaka's foster sister, her Kavaltra, as well. You know, so it's that she was always going to go wherever Dovlaka went. Can you have... I suppose you can have foster siblings of various status just because she's a maid doesn't oh, yeah. stop her being a foster sister. Yeah, oh, absolutely. I mean, there's even in that story of Oingus when he's fostered to Mither, although he thinks he's Mither's natural son, mm-hmm. and he gets taunted by someone of much lower status, you know, saying, you know, why should you always win when no one knows who your parents are? You're just, you know, you have a low status. Exactly. Because, yeah. So, in other words, she is a lower status foster sister. Yeah, but it means that it's that really close bond that can't be broken. Yeah, and uh, oh, poor Muckendub, he really lays into Mungan. And I can't say I blame no. him. I must read what he <laughs> says because yes. it's so good. Yeah. Things are in a bad way with you, O Mungan, and evil was your journey into the land of promise to the house of Malanan, since you learnt nothing there except for consuming food and practising foolish things. <laughs> it's hard on me that my wife has been taken into Leinster since I didn't make friendship without refusal with the King of Leinster's attendant, as you did with the King of Leinster. <laughs> so you can't follow your wife and neither can I. Yeah. I mean, it's just... <laughs> Attitude, what he says about... Um, oh, yeah, it's sort of like, you know... Longer in the land of promise. Yeah, completely yeah. useless that you were being fostered by Mananon as if all he told you was how to eat things and play fiddle. That's yeah. Right. yeah, waste of time. <laughs> and he's got a genuine grievance, yeah. after all. Mind you, Mongan's not much help. He just moans, oh, well, I know that as well as anybody. I know, yeah. Telling me something I don't know. <laughs> exactly. The thing is, they've both got the same problem. Mm. It's because of the agreement, Brandel's not going to let Mongan or Mungan's companion, yeah. anywhere near him or Dovlaka. No, absolutely not. You'll see not. him off, you know, it's yeah. just, they can't do it, they'll get attacked. Exactly. 
I think Mock and Dove's goading has seemed to have had some effect. Yeah. Because it goads him into coming up with a trick. Exactly. And he takes action. Now, this is quite a nice one, if a little bit uh, confusing or obscure. Um, Munkin tells Mock and Dove to go to this Uvdorish, a cave of the door. I don't know whether it's well, that a is, geographical yeah. location or part of a whether house. Whether it's a storage yeah. room near the entrance to the building. Yeah. It could be anything. It could be. But whatever it is, what they have stashed there is this deep basket, and it's got one sod from Ireland in it and one sod from Scotland. Why should he have earth from Scotland? Just something that might come in handy and oh, indeed so it does t- here. <laughs> and Mungan says uh, that McIntyre should bring this back and that Mungan will put one foot on each of the sods in the basket and ride on McIntyre's back. <laughs> That's ridiculous. Yeah. Well, of course, the idea is that when um, the King of Leinster asks his wizards to go and scry on what Mungan's doing and where he is, the answer they'll come back with is that he has one foot in Ireland and one foot in Scotland and he's riding on the back of an ox. <laughs> I think it suggests that he's definitely an ox, not a stag. Exactly. Yeah yeah. 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 This is obviously bound to confuse them. And uh, so, yeah, so this is how they pr- proceed so, yeah, to so King of Leinster. That way they are riding. I'm in Leinster. Yeah. And then, yeah, again, he sort of loses it again. The moment he sees the King of Leinster who's in some procession or other, yeah. he just sort of deflates and gives up and retreats. Yeah. yeah. You know, oh, we're never going to do this, yeah. so let's go away. Yeah. This next escapade, though, is high comedy. This yeah, is laugh out brilliant. loud. This is stuff. just great. Mungan and Macandav then uh, see in some other part of the procession, presumably, Tibreda, who's the sort of chief cleric of the King of Leinster and his little sub-cleric and Tiberda has a book of gospels in his hand and uh, the sub-cleric has some kind of musical instrument strapped around his neck. Kunamar didn't know what it was it's it's some kind of I'd say neck mounted or back mounted okay. instrument. Think accordion um, and, uh, <laughs> Please don't think accordion <laughs> and, um, but as far as Mac and Dav is concerned they're talking gibberish he asks mungan what is that that he's doing all i can hear is this amen amen so do whatever can i yeah mungan explains to him that it's latin learning now again meyer has translated this as reading but the word is legend which at root means latin learning it came to okay. mean reading but it is about that he doesn't understand the latin now this is gonna set up a joke that's gonna pay off later yeah yeah i think they must have been run away and gone somewhere else yeah because mongan does something really odd the first mm. thing he does is magic up a river yeah he just sort of creates a, a, a solid illusion yeah. of a river with a solid bridge over the top yeah. so when Tebrida and his cleric get there Tebrida yeah. looks at this thing and goes well I've never seen a river there I mean what he actually says is my father was born here and my grandfather was born here and I never did see a river and neither did they mm. but since there's a river here it's just as well there's a bridge <laughs> <laughs> and he just walks over the bridge yeah. with his cleric yeah. in which case when they're in the middle Mongo just removes the magic there yeah. is no bridge yeah. and they fall into the river <laughs> and are swept down the river yeah. and which Mongo turned oh with one thing he grabs the, yeah he grabs the gospel as Tibreda is falling into the river he's got he's got plans for that right but then he just turns around to Macandav and says shall I let them drown mm. and Macandav says why not mm. yeah you might as well let them drown and he says well wait a minute I'll tell you what we'll let them off yeah we'll send them down the river about a mile and yeah. then we'll leave them you know yeah. So he's not going to actually kill him, though. He's... No. Thinks he's going to. Well, he was not sure about it. Either way, Mungan's plan is that he then shapeshifts himself into the shape of Tibreda 
Um, so that's what he needed the gospel book for. Right. Um, and then he shapeshifts back and Dav into the little cleric who was going with along. a large a big tonsure. Yes. So he makes him a little cleric. He's bald. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And he, again, with this musical instrument hanging around his neck. When they catch up with the king's procession, uh, they're really quite warmly welcomed. He's obviously pleased to see him. Yeah. You know, he says, well, you haven't stopped seeing you for a while. Mm-hmm. Why don't you come and join the procession? Yeah. Come and read the gospel where we're walking along. You know, I've got my chariot here yeah. in front. Uh, uh, so that's why he grabbed the, you know, the gospel. gospel. Now yeah. he can read it. Sounds like quite a processional. Oh, it does. Yeah, something very big and shiny. All right, uh, but it gets even better because not only does Brandov, the King of Leinster, want to hear these beautiful gospels read out, but he also then asks Tibrida and the cleric <laughs> to go and hear Dovalaka's confession. <laughs> Just such a stroke of luck, isn't it? it? Yeah. yeah, very, very unfortunate. Oh, but the best bit is the comment his men make while Mongun Tipperda yeah. is walking along reading the confession. His uh, men at arms and all the nobles go, That's a bit odd. So I've never seen a cleric before who only had one word, and that's our men. <laughs> <laughs> because, of course, uh, and Dav- Dav- he can't understand a word. Exactly. So that. he's just going, Amen, 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 and just repeating it over yeah. and over again. It's, it's such a, again, it's, a Monty Python image of the monks going along saying B-A-A-Z-U Domine Amen Donna is Requiem Amen Amen <laughs> It's just pure farce Oh it's wonderful So great What I love is the way that the joke is set up earlier Yeah With payback later in the scene Yeah You know it's really sophisticated oh, storytelling You'd also expect many of these stories to go And so he said uh, He didn't understand the learning So he said Amen This was because Yeah, you know, yeah. It would it would just explain Yeah This doesn't explain no. It just in a sort of Eddie Izzard way And yeah, yeah. the joke to come back Exactly Yeah yeah yeah, yeah. It's the, sort of the running beautiful. gag of it It's gorgeous But I mean, I love also that it's this total, if you like, critique of the the learned clerics and speaking Latin, which is basically gibberish, yeah. you know, that amen is the only kind of familiar word, and that obviously Mackendall can get away with it. They yeah, still yeah. believe he's a cleric, even though he's not actually yeah. making any sense. Um, and in, all through this, the clerics, they're the buffoons. Yeah, they're a yeah. real source of comedy. Right, I mean, right. This there. is a later text. It's 14th well, century. 14th century, there But it's a good one. It is, it's gorgeous. Compared to the children of Turin. Oh, God, don't. Which, <laughs> yes, I know. But this is just such <laughs> a sophisticated piece of storytelling. Exactly, telling. so well written. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then there's the creation of the river and oh, the yes. bridge. I just keep getting this feeling that he turns himself into the bridge. Yeah, yeah. And then dispels the illusion that there is absolutely nothing no. to, to substantiate that. No. It's just how I have it in my yeah. head. But again, you get the sort of the stooge characters going, oh, I've never seen a river here, just as well as a bridge, in that very kind of deadpan <laughs> way. No, it's cartoon. It is, yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> so from this point, I think one can honestly say it's full-on bedroom farce. Absolutely high farce. <laughs> now, once he reaches Devlucker's room, it's interesting that she sees straight through his disguise. Yes. I mean, she's not fooled by the glamour. Mm. Now, it is... Definitely shapeshifting. Yeah, it's we're not, not just, talking about disguise. This yeah, it's is not just on. putting on a robe. This is actually changing what this you look like. You know, there's no way around it. This yeah. is just straight magic. Yeah, and uh, of course, Dav McIndave wastes no time in getting the room empty. Yeah, he, he puts was... out everybody except his own wife and the flacker. Exactly. He even chucks one of the nurses or the maids out bodily through the door. Yeah, her. yeah. <laughs> And what do they do next? Well, they close all the doors and windows and hop into bed with their respective wives. Yes, and this presumably then cures or at least temporarily alleviates Mungan's lovesickness. I hope he's not as useless as usual. Well, no, not for a little while anyway. (laughs) 
suddenly get this somewhat gruesome incident taking place. Yes. Now, in their haste to uh, get a cure for Mungan, let's say, they have overlooked someone. There is a Kalich who is sitting in the corner of the room. And she's watching everything. Oh, she has seen it all. Now... Kalyuk is what we used in the beginning to talk about the Kalyuk dog as a hag. What it Kalyuk actually means is just a veiled person, and it's often used of a nun. And I think it could well be a nun in this situation. Yeah. Um, and she has obviously seen everything that's happened. Yeah, and she, but of course, she, it says she's um, sitting there guarding, guarding the, the family jewels. jewels. Yes, <laughs> guarding the jewels. Yeah. Now, is this euphemistic? Really? I think it very probably is. That's right, that's that right. She's family jewels. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, she's guarding the jewels. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, right. Mungan then sends this magical breath. It doesn't say anything more about that magical breath to her. And that sort of obscures what it is she thinks that she's seen. But what she says when this kind of confusion comes over her is, oh, please do not rob me of heaven. Now, is this more innuendo? I think it is. I think it definitely is. She tries to convince them that she won't tell what yeah. she's seen anyway. But, you know, Mungan is really not sure. So he invites her over to him <laughs> To hear her confession, you know, presumably, you know, the the whole Tiberta disguise is still working on her. But when he pulls her over, it's really quite horrible. Well, this it's is quite nasty, actually. Yes, it is. Sort of funny, but very nasty. Oh, yes, yes. He calls her over and invites her to sit on a chair, which has a big spike now, on I it. I get the feeling he's just magicked up this spike. But exactly. like the bridge, it's solid when he wants to be wants it to be solid. Exactly, yeah. So that when this Kalyuk, this nun, sits down on the chair, she is impaled on this terribly phallic spike and dies. <laughs> it's horrible. It really is. But again, you see you've got the clerics yeah. making the clerics into fools now. Yeah. It looks like he's he's sort of uh, making the nun. I nearly said the butt of the joke, but that's really not very fair. <laughs> Sorry, that was entirely unintentional. Yes. <laughs> it's very hard. Can't move in here for innuendos. Right. Yeah. Well, Dove Locker is not the slightest bit sorry. No. She just says she, yeah, she would have betrayed them. Yeah. So, you know, they'd never got away with it. She doesn't seem to care that none's dead. Exactly. The, the yeah. <laughs> We're certainly not done with the farce yet. No. Because now the real Tibbeter <laughs> arrives, followed with 27 clerics. Yeah. They all start hammering on Dove Locker's door. And yeah. at this point, the doorkeepers are just going, what's that there? <laughs> they say we'd never had a year in which Tiburtas were more plentiful. You've got one in there, and we've got one out here. <laughs> Mungan immediately he's a bit more quick thinking than he usually yeah. is because he suddenly yells, "No, no, no! I'm Tiburta inside the room of the Queen. The ones outside the door. That's Mungan and his nobles, and they've all come to take the Queen away and yeah. capture her. Get them! Yeah, so kill so them they're all. They're both shouting, that, "Yeah, yeah, it's a Tiburta. No, it's a t- I'm I'm Tiburta. No, I'm Tiburta. <laughs> yes." <laughs> not a Spartacus in sight. No, no, not one. And then, of course, the King of Leinster himself shows up in the midst of what all this. Was and, yeah, and he just piles on and sort of starts hacking the clerics. And they and decide that the death. ones outside the door yeah, are the are imposters. The, are the imposters. That's yeah. Mungan and his men trying to get in yeah. and attack Tibberda and yeah. the Queen inside. Yeah. 18 of the 27 of the clerics are yeah. killed. Yeah. So, I mean, this is funny, but funny in their terms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and Tibberdo himself only just about makes it back to his church. Yeah. And uh, it says, none of them without wounds. Yeah. Well, in the midst of all this, Dovlaka is just quietly biding her time. And once it's all died down, she turns around to Brando, the Who king of Leinster. saved her. Oh, exactly, yes. And says, uh, by the way, the Tibberdo that was in here with me was actually Mungon. 
and the one that you attacked out there was the real Tibridor. <laughs> waits for his reaction. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think about him? Imagine the second silence as the king realises what he's just done. Yeah. Whoops. <laughs> Embarrassing. Yes. I might accidentally have killed a lot of a lot, a lot of priests. <laughs> that doesn't look good on the CV. And uh, of course, she admits to being with Mongan. You know, she, it's funny how she doesn't seem yeah, to. Yeah, she, she doesn't conceal it at all. She just goes, "Oh yes." She never lies to Brand Avatar. No, she, she doesn't. But she does wait to be asked, or yeah. wait, you know, until Mongan is safely away, which he seems to be at this stage. Yeah. You know? So uh, he says, "Were you with Mongan?" And he goes, "I was." Yeah. For he has the greater claim on me. Yeah. So although she's told him about this incredible love yes. she has for him, yeah. by this time he must be realising that he is now being held by a tricked promise. Yes, exactly. And he's getting a bit annoyed. Yeah. Well, Mungon and Mark and Dav, they've clearly made a, a pretty clean escape, leaving all this chaos behind them. And they go back home for another three months, but during which time Mungon, he's oh. fallen back into his wasting sickness and he's useless once again without the missus. Um, there's some really quite risque stuff happening here. I mean, not just the kind of the sexual bedroom. It makes farce. Father Ted look positively tame, doesn't it? It does, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's very much kind of painting the whole of the church in, in a pretty poor light or it's parodying making fun it. of it. Absolutely, a parody, yeah. yeah. And I mean this whole business about the Queen's confession. Um it's this great sort of satire on the seal of the confessional. Yeah, it is. You know, and the privacy, whatever goes on in that little dark cabinet, you know, that no one can talk about. So, you know, it's even it's worthy of Chaucer in place. It is, yeah. You know, it's not necessarily what you would expect yeah. from, you know, a late medieval Irish text. As I say, that's why I mentioned Chaucer, because it's mm. approximately the same date as, say, the Miller's Tale. Yeah, yeah. Or the Wife of Bath Tale. So yeah. it's good as that in many ways. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, even this business of, you know, killing a nun, which I think it is in this case. I don't case. think Chaucer would have quite gone that far. No, exactly. And it is this terrible kind of phallic you know, impolation, if you like. You know, it's not for the faint of heart. That wasn't actually, that wouldn't have been written by clerics, would it? Well, no, it it would seem not. I mean, it might have been sort of transcribed, but certainly not composed by the clerical order. Something we forgot to mention Mm. in uh, in in all the business with the class was when he meets his, uh, meets up with the flacco, he gives her three kisses. Yeah. Now, this three kisses turns up all the time. It does, and it seems to almost be like a way of recognising or acknowledging that they know each other. Yeah. You know, that yeah. even though he, he looks completely different, that it means that this is it's they, a sign. They know if he other. gives yeah. her three kisses, that yeah. part of the, that part of the plan has worked. Exactly. Yeah, it yeah. Just seems to have that quality about yeah, it. Yeah. There's one other little detail we mm. mentioned. It's not really relevant, yeah. other than glass is made a big thing of. Yes, it talks about you know closing the glass door beside the glass window. Windows, yeah, so it's, it's very a, posh. It is. Yeah, I think yeah. that's pretty much what it's saying. Well, the next section takes us to the end of the second quarter. So six months later, and Macadav is still very fed up with being without his wife when it's not his fault. <laughs> and so when he prods Mungan again, Mungan suggests that he go over to Brega and see what may be done. What you mean, go and ask Dovlaka what to do? <laughs> well, pretty much, yeah, exactly. And what Dovlaka says is that Macandav should get Mungan over to Leinster as quick as possible because the king is currently away 
And what's more, she's being propositioned left, right and centre. Even the charioteer says <laughs> that he wants to run off with her. <laughs> I like the way she adds, you know, Mongan's so weak. I'm yeah. sure she says he acts in a weak manner. Exactly. Which yeah. is just going, he's useless. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and we don't blame her. So Makadov does get Mongan over to Leinster, but even seeing his wife doesn't seem to snap him out of it. And they're sitting there, they're actually playing fickle. And... Dovlaka eventually has to basically strip off her clothes and shove her breasts in Mungan's face in order to get any kind of reaction out of him. There's a wonderful <laughs> description of how luscious and white and soft her breasts are. That finally seems to get Mungan slightly interested. <laughs> I know, it's crazy. He's, he's supposed to be suffering from this love sickness. Yeah. And then suddenly there she's going, well... Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Here. Do something. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Just get on with it. And he just goes, can't we just play Fisher? But anyway, whatever they do, they do. And then Mungan just, he gets away in time. Yeah. But of course, well, uh, Brown Dove, when he gets back, knows he's been there. Yeah. But he takes a really deadpan approach. Mm-hmm. I and mean, it's, it's quite funny. He says, look, I can see him mooning over Mongan again. He says, well, look, if you're mooning over Mongan, I'll know he's been here. Yeah. So at least we understand each other. Yeah. <laughs> and... As before, Vlaka doesn't bother lying to Brandov. You know, she just was he here? Yeah, he was. yeah, he was here. And sure, next time he's just gone, I'll tell you. Of course, by the end of the third quarter... In other words, nine months later... Well, Mongan is useless. Yeah. Absolutely useless. <laughs> he's sitting around doing nothing. Mm. It gets to the point where his nobles even offer to go to war in order to get his wife back. <laughs> Well, he just about has the presence of mind to say, well, that he doesn't want anyone else to suffer for his folly. Yeah. I think so, too. Yeah, so it just about gets through to him uh, in the same way that his father would agree to anything just so his men wouldn't die by sheep. At least he's got that. Exactly. The next section takes us to the end of the year. Yes, and of course, after a year, that means that Dovlaka's period of grace is coming to an end. And indeed, Bran Dove seems to be preparing this great wedding feast. It's going to be hard for her to get out of this one. It is, rather. If Mungan is going to act, now is the time. It's now or never. He will lose her if he doesn't get her mm-hmm. back now. So he and Macandav do head off to Leinster, but as they get there, there's all of the nobles of Leinster and beyond who are lining up to come to this great feast. Now, it's described in Meyer's translation particularly yeah. as a wedding feast. It's slightly euphemistic, isn't it? I think it is. I think it's slightly the sensitivity of the translator that, in fact, what's being talked about is bedding her. That the feast is described as for Fesha, and Fesh is literally sleeping over and means having sex with. And there's another little phrase that Meyer translates as uh, Brandov swears he will wed Dovlaka now. But in fact, what he swears is that he'll take her. Mm. And it's very much got a forceful sense to it. I haven't found any examples of the same phrase being used for a woman taking a man. It tends to be a man taking a woman. So what you're talking about is lawful rape. It really is, you know. And unfortunately, in a lot of medieval stories, that's what wedding... Yeah, I mean, this isn't as horrific as it actually sounds in terms of, to our senses. Yeah, exactly. Because, to be honest, a wedding is a bedding. Yes. The wedding wasn't this uh, great sacrament until very late. People were wedded at the the church door. It wasn't one of the main rites of passage. It was a matter of a contract. Exactly. And then people came together to celebrate the union, celebrate the bedding. Yeah. And that this explains why after the feast you go in and see the bride put to bed. Exactly. 
exactly, yeah, it's, yeah. And there's evidence of consummation of the marriage that was and the all that kind bit. of thing. Exactly, that's what The rest mattered. was just a contract. Exactly, but then, you know, we've talked about before the status of lawlessness that various unions in old Irish um, society from the law texts, and that it goes down to lawlessness fossil, uh, which is lawlessness by rape. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, so much of it has to do with establishing both paternity, but also whose family has responsibility Bidity, for yeah, looking at, yeah. after any outcome. In fact, I was recently reading a Thomas Hardy uh, story, The Well Beloved, mm-hmm. um, and in that it's talking about kind of an island community off the mm. south coast of England. And it's very strongly implied that within the island, if you got engaged to somebody, you slept with them. Oh, that was, yeah. This exactly. Is, this and and that, so. uh, it meant that you could break it off if there wasn't any progeny mm-hmm. from mm-hmm. that. And that's discussed sort of all yeah. the way through it as being very backward and traditional. Yeah, but you know? it was so right the way through the yeah. centuries in the country areas. Exactly. Uh, the church took over a lot yeah. of this. But the, the old style of wedding, yeah. uh, as I say, the church was very late to mm-hmm. take over marriage. Yes, yeah. Um, it, this was normal. Yes. And once you had the betrothal, mm. that allowed you to sleep with someone. Exactly. And, you know, and then the final contract yeah. was when the child was born. Exactly. Um, except it was, you know, if you were nobility, yeah. they wanted to make sure they saw exactly. you bedded. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because exactly. otherwise you might be able to annul it later. Yes, or you might, uh, someone else might be able to swear that they're the father of the child and yeah, that yeah. changes uh, inheritance rights. But it, this is a big subject. It is. We're talking very generally. Mm. But um, I think the important thing here is that this is a woman won through a, a trick, an mm. arrangement. It's not to her will. No, and she makes it very clear all the way through that it's Mungan she wants to be with. You know, that that seems to be a love match, even though it was yeah. prearranged. It does seem to be a real partnership. And that this is, in fact, just that, a mm. lawful rape. Yeah, exactly. And in some ways completely unacceptable, even in the terms of these stories. Exactly, as we'll see. So, Mackendorff wants to know, essentially, what are we wearing to this party? He says, <laughs> what shape are we going to go in this time? <laughs> yeah, because obviously they can't go as themselves. No, no, naturally. And then we get to meet the hag of the mill. Yes. And the way she's described is brilliant. Yeah. They saw the hag of the mill, Quivener, and she was a weaver's beam of a tall hag, and a large chain dog with her licking the millstones, and a twisted rope round his neck, and Brother was his name. And they saw a hack mare with an old pack saddle upon her, carrying corn and flour from the mill. Nice description. It is. But as ever, the names are really central to the description itself. I mean, first of all, Quivna, as this old hag, her name means memory, which I think is very significant, you know, mm-hmm. especially for someone who is perceived to be very old. And um, then her dog, Brother, it seems to imply kind of being rushy or somehow made of chaff. It's sort of yeah. leftover, the leftover bits. bits and pieces. Yeah, it could be put s- together. You know, scraps would be, mm. you know, what you might call them. Then there's this phrase that I absolutely love. It describes her as a garamnach of a tall hag. <laughs> now, what Meyer, Meyer says is she was tall as a weaver's beam. But once again, we have this garamnach, the, the weaver's beam. We've come across this phrase before. We have. We? we came across it in Maitura in the story of Brig and Ruadon that once Ruadon has been killed and it talks about the spear of the maternal kin it says and so a weaver's beam garmna was known as the spear of the maternal kin now it also shows up as a gloss on the letter nin in the ogham and nin is the letter that means a fork or more specifically a woman's genitalia so there's something in there which i don't quite have yet about Mm -hmm. this weaver's beam 
and it's something very specific to women, but I don't know exactly what. Yeah, it's interesting because it's almost like, yes, it's derogatory mm. and um, the opposite at the and same laudatory, time. And laudatory, yeah. at the same time. Yes, yeah, exactly. It's this sense of the power of the old woman, mm. and yet that's sort of almost like the mocking of the sexuality. Yeah. But there, it's, it, it, yet it's deeper at the same yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. And it's also this strong image of weaving. Yes, exactly. And the, the deep work, of the deep magic of the woman. Yeah, yeah. Gives her this um, status of uh, of one of the fates. Yes, exactly. The yeah. weavers. It's the closest that we get, I think, in the Irish tradition that I've found so far in the older material, not in the more recent mm. one where you have spinning hags and the more kind of no, no, folk tales yeah. sort of stories. But in terms of the older stuff of the mythology, I think it's the first glimpse that we have of women's power being associated with making the fabric. You know, and making the fabric of, not only of actual fabric, yeah, the fabric of the world, exactly. the fabric of, of, time. Um, of people, and of course, giving birth, and yeah. therefore, you know, weaving the fates of the whole life. Exactly, yeah. So I think we have here got this image of, yeah. the, of, of the hag as a fate. Exactly, yeah. yeah. I'm trying to think of the right word. Yeah, I know it's difficult, because it is... It doesn't actually exist. No, and it's, it's very obscure we're only getting a glimpse of it mm. you know i really don't know more about it than but we've said there is something significant about yeah, the term definitely it's, it's just the way it's used absolutely anyway we better get on with the story yes you know i find it interesting and curious that, mm. that mongan seems to increase his resolve from this point from the point at which he meets the hag yes it changes absolutely and indeed what the hag responds to him is also significant she says it's been three score years since anyone asked me to converse with him yeah it's odd it feels as though he knows her or mm. is expecting to meet her mm. or if he's it's, met her before it is as though you know Mungan's memories are catching up with him and yeah. that, you know, he he meets this hag of memory. What I really like is that when he does meet her, he laughs. Yeah, there's an odd feeling of relief or relaxation yeah. from Mungan. As I said earlier, something changes at yeah. this point in the story. It's the tipping point. It is, very much. when he meets the hag of the mill. And what he says back to her is extremely significant. Yeah, and it's very respectful, I think. He says, if you would take my advice, yeah. you would let me turn you into to the shape of a young girl and then you could be a wife fitting either for myself or for the king of leinster so he's making her an offer where she will end up married to a king of one sort or another even in spite of the flacker exactly still yeah this. well this is it this is why i feel it's respectful there's something mm. honorable about it mm. you know the, the hag will gain you gain status. a king, and if the, if I fail and the king of Leinster doesn't take you, yeah, uh, I then will. I will promise to take you. That's what I think. Yeah, yeah. There's another odd thing I keep thinking about. It's almost as though he is seeing how she might have looked those three score years ago. Yeah, sixty years ago she would have been a young and beautiful girl. Oh yes, and indeed she does accept his offer. <laughs> right, and then he really lays on this shape shifting glamour bit. I oh, have yeah. to read this. Yeah. And with the magic wand, he gave a stroke to the dog, which became a sleek white lap dog. The fairest that was in the world with a silver chain around its neck and a little bell of gold on it so that it would have fitted into the palm of his hand. And he gave a stroke to the hag who became a young girl, the fairest of form and make of the daughters of the world, to wit Ivald of the shining cheeks. He himself assumed the shape of Oyd, the son of the king of Connacht, and Mac and Dav he put into the shape of his attendant. 
and he made a shining white palfrey with crimson hair, and of the pack saddle he made a gilded saddle with variegated gold and precious stones, and they mounted two other mares in the shape of steeds, and in that way they reached the fortress. Yes, so they are now all set for the final act and the best trick yet. It's the end of the year. Yeah. His last chance to act. <laughs> you know, there's still these echoes of the story of Rhiannon. I mean, she was the bride stolen at her own wedding. Yeah. There's a lot more to it, but those echoes still continue. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm really struck by this image of the, the memory hag and this idea of turning back time those 60 years, that not only does the hag then, you know, become this young girl... That she might have that been she, that time Exactly, ago. yeah. But you also get this idea that the sort of scrappy dog, uh, Brother, yeah. it almost shrinks and shrinks and shrinks back because until it's just this dog. little white dog. And it it's, might be slightly confusing from the translation uh, when it talks about silver collar and the gold bell, but it's not the gold bell that would fit in the hand, it's the dog. And that I find interesting because there is a folktale I, I can't remember it's connected with uh, the three feathers and the three wishes and, mm. and the three tasks that some three young men have to do of course but one of the things they have to get is to find the smallest dog in the world yeah and this dog comes out of a hazelnut Gorgeous. and it fits in the it fits inside the palm of your hand yeah, in fact yeah. you can close your hand around it Lovely. and it just strikes I've never come across it in the Irish before this idea of this tiny dog yeah and yeah. yet here it is it seems yeah. to be the same thing it's this yeah. magical dog yeah yeah small enough maybe it came out of a hazelnut <laughs> it's also just worth pointing out that the disguises that um, Mungon chooses for himself and for the hag are quite specific that she's turned into this evil of the white cheeks who's said to be the daughter of the king of Munster and he is said to have turned himself into Oithon it's actually Oith or Oith Oland beautiful Oith who's the son of the king of Connacht so we've got sort of Mungon's Ulster connections and Brandov's Leinster connections now we've got this sense that the whole country's involved. Yeah. You know, that it's it's now everyone has come together for the denouement. Somebody, <laughs> yeah, and you're absolutely right because we've reached the last section of the end game. Yeah. And so the King of Leinster invites all the guests to come. Including these unexpected guests. Oh yes, yes, but who he still has to welcome, um, to come and join him. There's all this Settling of the pecking order, of course, where everybody sits is very important and they settle down to enjoy the feast. But not before there's been a bit of a kerfuffle over seating arrangements. <laughs> it usually is. Exactly. Now, it's it's very difficult to kind of wrap your head around in the Meyer translation. But my reading of it is this, that the king invites what he sees as the son of the king of Connacht. So he's a so very important guest. Exactly. And he invites him to come and sit at his shoulder. So, you know, it's it's a phrase... That essentially means beside him. Yeah. But what Mungan responds in the shape of the son of the King of Connacht is, oh, that's not how we do things in Connacht. <laughs> in Connacht, if the second best man at the feast will sit, and he says, our slish unreach. So literally on the bench of the king, mm -hmm. another way of saying beside. Mm. But he seems to be literalising it. Oh, no, we don't stand at your shoulder, we sit on your bench. And since I'm the second best man here and you're the king, I'm going to sit right beside you on your bench. So he's making an argument about what he's been invited to do anyway. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And it's this deliberate kind of pedantry and nitpicking over the exact language. And in other stories, we do have Mongan engaging in this sort of confusing or... Yeah. Obfuscating. Yeah, that's the word I was looking for. <laughs> yeah, <about>. yeah. 
<laughs> seems to, this seems to be part of his character. Oh, yes, yes. And, of course, that's another world trait again, really. It rather is, yeah. <laughs> but Morgan, now that he's got this sort of transformed, beautiful hag at his side, suddenly he's now the man of action. Mm. So he's doing all sorts of things. He encourages his pretended wife to flirt with the king, and he even puts some sort of love spell mm. on, on the king. And soon, though it's his own wedding, Brandolph's becomes inflamed with love for the seeming girl. And it, I love what it says. Mm. There was not a bone the size of an inch in him, but was filled with love of the girl. That, that's not terribly complimentary to the King of Leinster. It's like it's only the size of an inch. What, you mean another euphemistic I, comment? I think it might well be. Um, it almost seems quite shocking that there's the King of Leinster at his own wedding feast... Uh, flirting with one of his guests' yes, wives. Sending messages all the time. Exactly, little messages back and forth through his attendants, and even saying to her, "It would be better for you to be married to a king than to a king's son." He said, "Yeah, you know, you do know one higher status." Exactly, him. exactly, yeah. And then the gifts start arriving. Yeah, now Brown Dove's advisors are horrified as he starts <laughs> giving away his house and home, Just effectively. Yeah, down to this girl that he fancies. She even gets. Given his magical drinking horn yeah. and this wondrous girdle that will protect the wearer from or disease or danger, disease and danger, yeah. yeah. Um, and but the thing is that Brandov brushes off his advisor, saying, "Don't worry, I'll get it all back once I get the girl." <laughs> Not likely. <laughs> no. Mac and David's busy collecting up the gifts as they're passed over. Yeah. You know, as soon as they come to him, he's going in the bag. In the bag. In the bag. He puts some, gives them one, and they yeah. get shoved in the bag. She doesn't get to keep them just in case. Yeah. <laughs> And all the time, if you think about it, there is Dovlaka just sitting there next yeah. next to Brandov, and he seems to have forgotten all about her. Yeah. You know, it gets it's so bad that even the attendants notice yeah. and start telling the king what he's doing. They go, "What is it you're noticing? Are you in the house?" <laughs> so, in other words. What on earth are you doing? She is sitting right there. You've spent the last year trying to get this woman into bed and now you're about to get there and what are you doing? You're flirting with another... What well, are your guests like? Yeah, you're after another one. Yeah. Well, he's lost it completely. Yeah. And the wheel's fully turned and he finally offers to swap Dovlacker for his guest wife. Yep. The climate hag. But Mungan is once again treating the hag of the mill with this great respect. Before he agrees to this wife swapping... Which is what he's been after all the time. Exactly, we would assume. He does say to the hag, do you mind being married to the King of Leinster rather than to me? Yeah, and the hag goes, either will do, I don't yeah. care. <laughs> <laughs> and so the swap goes ahead. And when he gets Dovlaka, as usual, Mungan gives three kisses to his true wife, just as he always does mm. when he greets her, and they all get drunk and hilarious. Yes. <laughs> Until Mackendab was always the one with a bit of common sense, yeah. invents an insult that's been offered to his master so they can make a quick getaway with all the king's treasure. Of course. <laughs> and the following morning, Brandov wakes up in bed with an old grey hag and bereft of all his treasure. <laughs> Yeah, good story. <laughs> it's a great story. It really is. There's so much to it. But one of the things that we noticed as we went along is that there's loads of equivalences and balancing and mirroring. It's one of the main themes, isn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. And we've commented on it as we went along. But in terms of equivalence, you start off in that first story. There's the equivalence between one cow, although mm -hmm. albeit a very special cow, and the entire kingdom of Lothan. <laughs> So. My kingdom for a cow! <laughs> that wouldn't come out too well in Richard III, would it? No, but it's so Irish. A cow, a cow, my kingdom, kingdom for, for a cow. cow! Yeah, well, that's what we have. <laughs> 
Um, then in the sort of second story, you get this equivalence or exchange between 50 cows and their calves with Dovlacha. So, you know, the, the yeah, exchange yeah. rate's gone up somewhat. That's right. I mean, she is worth this. I mean, this this 50 cows that yeah. sends uh, Mongan into this drooling fit. Yeah, yeah. You know, and he f- to the point where he forgets his wife. Exactly, yeah, yeah. So she's obviously then 50 or possibly 75 times as important as a kingdom. Um, and then finally we get this equivalence between the Hag of Memory and Dovlaka herself. But they are swapped for each other. Exactly, but yeah. they're also matched then by an equivalence between Mungon and the King of Leinster, yeah. where Mungon is yeah. always offering the Hag, you know, if you don't get the King of Leinster you can have me, that kind of a, a, a swap, you know. Yeah. So. And of course all the way through the story we've got these matching pairs, all exactly. the time, Fierknally the, the fair and, and Fierknally the black, black. Yeah. you've got uh, all these different Hags. Yes. And the, there's this constant matching. You've yeah. got three separate stories. Yeah, and again, the way that the stories mirror each other with the making of a, an agreement to swap without knowing the price. Yeah, yeah well, I'm, I'd say it's two stories, really, yeah. but, but the third, I'm taking the story with the hag. Yes. It's almost like the start of the third story. Exactly, yeah. yeah. You've got third sets of mirroring equivalences yes. there. It's such an interesting construction. It is, yeah, yeah. Very masterfully done, I would say. Well, another thing I think is interesting is Mongan's behaviour mm. all through the story. He seems so inept, so yeah. Useless, yeah. sometimes as if he's just not all there. Absolutely. And then suddenly, in the last section, he changes completely. Yeah, yeah. And he's directing the action. Yeah. And he really is. It's it's a terrific change. He's the one who understands the whispering that's yes. going on in the court. He's the one who tells the transformed hag what to do. Mm. Uh, he's the one who even gets it together and puts a love spell on Brandov yeah. so that uh, so it all goes wrong for him. Yeah. Why didn't he do that in the first place? I know, I know. Well, what yeah. I was wondering, and we'll come back to this again, because one of the other stories that we'll be looking at is entitled How the Story of Mungan's Frenzy Came to be Told. So, and this is Bwala or Bala uh, Mungan in the same way that we have Bala Hovna, which is Sweeney Astray. Yeah. But what we get is a story about how he came to tell his wife about this frenzy, but we don't get what the frenzy actually is. And I was wondering whether this year, when he's separated and he can't do anything right, whether that's the frenzy that's him going astray and he's talking to his wife later on exactly. about how it all went wrong that year exactly yeah um, so I, I wonder about that we'll have another look at that when we come to the and this story. makes his connection with Dovlaka yeah. even stronger absolutely that yeah. the two of them are meant to be together yeah. and of course they're born the same night exactly and think of all these other yeah I'm just thinking of Cahul and his mm. horses or exactly or, yeah. um, Pradary yes you know yeah. that in some way him you know he has to be matched with his duck exactly yeah yeah <laughs> that's a really work <laughs> It doesn't in English. You, know, you can equate Rhiannon with the mare yeah. and, and so on, but some it's, you know, Mongan and his duck. I know, it doesn't quite have the same ring. It is also this bit where he sets, when he sets up the trick to get all the King of Leinster's treasures, mm. and that fits in with what you were just saying. It feels almost as though he and his wife has planned it, mm. but he's forgotten about it. Yeah, exactly. That by being separated from her, he loses the power to act his part. He's forgotten what he was supposed to do yeah. until he meets a hag of memory. Exactly. Now, yeah. this is all implicit. It's not yeah. explicit. No, it's not. It's but I think it's very strongly suggested, let us say. I find it really interesting. We didn't kind of talk about it as we went through it, but there's a moment in that last scene of action when Mungon has got the King of Leinster to agree to the swap. Suddenly he gets this burst of anger. It's a real sudden flash. It, it is, yeah. And he suddenly says, it is wrong for you to ask to swap people. He says, it would have been fine if you asked me to swap horses or armour. You know, those are gifts that 
can be swapped. Should be swapped. Exactly, that that's right. But that there's something very wrong about swapping women. And I wonder, is there a, a criticism in here of ideas of the droit de seigneur, yeah. or even ideas that in arranging for marriages, that whole sense of transferring women as chattels as part of the property. So somehow this story is in fact a counterexample. I think it might be that even oh, though... there anyway. Yeah, but e- even though he and Dovlaka seem to have set up this whole situation mm. in order to get that swap done, um, that there is also a real criticism, and it might even be a satire... Yeah. on that process of transferring women as property. So, that, uh, after all, this is a later story. Mm, it and it, I feel that the storyteller is certainly putting this objection into Mongan's mouth. Yeah, yeah. Um, even though it isn't sort of inherent in the story itself, mm. which is an earlier story mm. from an earlier time. Yes, yeah. But here you've suddenly got this um, this criticism. Yeah. And it's definitely there. Yeah. Well, I feel that as well as this outburst of Mongans, that there's also... A criticism in that view of women as property, just in the sort of proactivity and the power of the women in the story. Um, and that's not just of Laka, who we have praised mm-hmm. for her quick thinking and uh, her common sense, but it's also these hags. Yeah, I've almost wondered whether there is one hag or three, mm-hmm. but whether they are three manifestations, and I don't mean aspects, yeah. I mean manifestations of the hag figure. Yes. And each of them is playing this central part Absolutely. in each of the two stories yeah yeah um and did the hag want the king of Leinster all along yeah i know well the first hag seems to have definitely engineered things so that the leadership in Lochlan is changed yeah so and then we end up with this hag who is in bed with the king of Leinster so yeah you have to wonder you know yeah. is this her plan the hag in the center ends yeah. up coming to a sticky end but she is probably a nun exactly yeah so it might be again this idea that that's not how Hags should be that yeah, if you're no, if you're let's old, give them their the yeah the kalyach that, yeah. that you know it's like a false kalyach in the midst of the real kalyach yes, who will betray the truth exactly yeah you know there's a lot more you could talk about absolutely yeah but it leads straight into one of the things that I've been thinking about as we've gone along that uh, there are many stories particularly in the English stories mm. of um, or the Arthurian or again the wife of Bath mm. gives, gives another version but the what do women want stories mm. the stories like Gawain who meets the ugly hag who uh, he, he then gets into a position where he has to marry mm. it also is connected with Arthur yeah. doing the same thing and he rescue takes his place basically mm. um, Lady Ragnall I think yeah. it is one version yeah. and uh, he agrees to marry her as a matter of Honor, he discovers that she, she in fact can be a beautiful woman mm. or one version he wakes up in the morning and finds himself with a yes. beautiful woman the another another version he the woman gives him a choice mm. she can either be beautiful at night for him mm. or she can be beautiful in the day mm. and when he chooses mm. I think you'd like it better if you were beautiful in the daytime so yeah. everybody else could see it. Mm-hmm. And she says, you've chosen what I would have chosen and therefore I'm going to be beautiful all the time. Yes, yes. So it's there, there is some connection. with. I'm not saying these are equivalent mm. stories. Mm. Those stories are all about women wanting power, power yeah. and having the right to power. Yeah. They're often referred to as sovereignty stories. Exactly. And what I like, though, about Mungan is that in the end, it's not a question of someone self-sacrificingly saying, yes, I'll go to bed with the ugly 
ugly old woman because that's what man in his right mind would want to do that and then he wakes up with a beautiful girl in our this story is the other way around. he goes to bed with a beautiful girl and he wakes up with the hag and you know I think I wonder how deliberate that is or whether this is just another version that often gets overlooked because it doesn't that's really why I fit it in reverse of Lady Ragnall exactly it's exactly. a lovely story and I prefer it this way absolutely <laughs> and you're right the women in the story do have sovereignty in inverted commas yeah. they do have sovereignty in the sense of personal power exactly yeah. uh, in spite of the fact that you've got legal rape you've got the yeah. women being given away in the mm. end it's the women who create the action yeah. and make and break the kings exactly all these stories about you know yes I'll go to bed with the hag and she turns beautiful there's a lot of commentary about how this is to do with you know the king marrying the land and the sovereignty goddess and all this kind of thing I'm not sure that there are goddesses involved I think that these are real women who have real power you know, despite the magic or the shape-shifting or whatever, I think that what the story's about, I don't think it's any, you know, human king has to marry this abstract I think feminine. It's just the old story These of, are uh, women. Of the story of relationships between women and men. Exactly. And it's, let's have a bit of fun. Exactly, yeah. yeah except for the... Except for the nun in the middle of I it. I know, yeah, but let's, let's sort of not there, look at that is, too deeply. No. Please. <laughs> There is one more thing I think that I wanted to comment on yeah. is um, that all the way through I've referred to this resonance mm. with the story of the marriage of uh, Rhiannon. Mm-hmm. It's still there all yeah. the way through. So I think I will put up a sort of compare and contrast table. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, obviously with the links to the text. Yeah. The other thing is that there's still this haunting connection with Arthur as well. There is, right the way through. The birth and conception of yeah, Arthur yeah. and the birth conception of, of Mongan. And this makes Mongan, I think we might have underestimated his importance mm-hmm. in some ways. He's, he seems to be a prototype character yes. who needs looking into a lot more, which yeah. is exactly what we're going to do. Exactly. And yes, we will continue this discussion in future we're enjoying episodes. it. Yeah. <laughs> now, before we finish these stories of Mongan's birth and conception, we mustn't forget there is another version there is another story Don't called Convert Mungan <laughs> it's short and sweet it is it is and it is to be found in Lavernahudra as we said before now this is I would say almost certainly an earlier text than um, the Book of Fermoy which 14th is 14th or 15th 14th 15th century where we got our lovely story of Mongon and Dovlacha from. Leverin the Husra goes back to 11th century. I think I already said it's our oldest manuscript with native Irish material actually in it. It also contains Imrov Bran. That is included with several stories of Mongon. So they were obviously seen as a kind of a set that go together. Mm-hmm. Um, and we said they were obviously quite important because they were yeah, used as examples. The poetic examples right yeah. the way through in, in Middle Irish times. Um, and also, I do think it's worth bearing in mind that it seems that Leverna was to hand when the Annals of the Four Masters was being compiled. And that's much later. That's like 16th century, mm-hmm. the Annals of the Four Masters. Any kind of pseudo-historical references like that dating of the death of Mungon and even things like, uh, you know, the name and lineage of Fiatna Dove mm-hmm. and when he was king and all that kind of thing. These are all from the Four Masters. So... I feel that since there aren't references, it seems, in other annals, that this was specific to four mm-hmm. masters. And it's because they had LU there and they wanted to historicise so it. So the point is that this version connects up with the prophecy. It's in the same book as Absolutely. you find the prophecy uh, given in the Voyage of Bran. Yes, and that the prophecy itself, you know, that's in poetry, which Meyer says could be as early as the, the 6th or 7th century. Yeah, so, so like, really, really old, archaic. He's an old character. Absolutely, yeah. 
in spite of the fact we're looking at a late and funny text, yeah. he is a really old and popular oh, character. Yeah. We can put the text on the blog, but yeah. I suppose we could discuss some of the... The main contrasts, yes. Yeah, briefly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, in the first place, that first journey that Fiachna Finn makes, rather than being to Lochlan, it's over to Scotland. And it says that he goes over to help his friend Oidon, um, who's being beset by this fierce and terrible warrior. The venomous sheep? No, I'm afraid not, <laughs> no. unfortunately. Yeah, a lot of our favourite bits aren't in the LU And version. of course, once Fekna is sees this terrible warrior mm. and he's going to go up against him and he's going to get killed. Yeah. In the meantime, yeah. Mananan has gone straight to Fekna's wife. And yes. This, and he offers her, he says to her, what would you do to save your husband? Mm. Now, she puts a limiter on and she mm. says, nothing that would disgrace his honour. Yes. So at least she's thinking. Exactly. And this is very much like uh, what Aideen says when she's, you know, asked if she'll cure her brother-in-law of this lovesickness. You know, she'll do it to save his life, but she doesn't want to do anything that will dishonour her husband. That's interesting that there is such a similarity and that here the choice is given to Fiekna's wife and not to Fiekna, mm-hmm. you know. And of course, um, another interesting contrast is that uh, Manon, oh, of course that was Mither, wasn't it, who did that? Uh, yes, 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 yes yeah, yeah. I'll come back to that later because <laughs> I personally think that Manon has stolen most of Mither's story. Yeah. Well, I... <laughs> I'm building, up the, I'm building up the evidence. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but the, the point is that uh, he tells her outright that she will bear a glorious son, yeah. even before she's agreed to the deal. Yeah. So he gives her all the pros and cons straight up. Exactly, yeah. There's, there's none of this agreeing to something that you don't know what the price will be. This is all informed consent. Mm. You know, everything's laid on the table beforehand. Maranon also says to Fiekna's wife that he himself will go and tell Fiekna about this deal. So again, it's, it's all out in the open. And there's nothing about finding clear, out later. It? Yeah. yeah, and I mean, she tells Fickner about it herself when he comes home. Yeah, there's nothing hole in the wall, nothing hidden, nothing yeah. tricksy. Yeah, and at the very end of this nicely short and sweet story in LU, there is a quatrain where Mananon leaves his name with Fiekna's wife again, and so that she knows this who's is done it. Really familiar. It really is. This is so like. Eru and Elitha, where Eru has already slept with Elitha in the planned hero conception of Bresh, as we discussed in uh, series two. Um, and it's only when he's going that she asks for his name and mm. who he is. And in that story, Elitha even leaves her with a gold ring. Which, oddly enough, turns up in the Fomoy version. Exactly. That, the later version. Yeah, we have that ring token where Maranon wants the ring so that he can go to Fiegna's wife. So that might have existed in an oral version. Yeah. That's the whole story. That, that's pretty much it, got. yeah. And we'll put, as I say, we'll put the text on Exactly, the yeah. Uh, it's a good story, though. It is a nice one and is definitely the source for our extended mm. and, you know, wonderfully constructed entertaining version. This shorter version, although it doesn't have any venomous sheep or um, <laughs> right or humorous wife swapping, it's more in keeping with other kind of hero birth stories. Yeah. Um, we already talked about Eru and Elitha. There's elements within uh, the whole story of Aedine and Mither, yeah. um, which, of course, starts with the conception of Oingus Og between the Dagda and Bowen. You know, so it definitely seems to fit into that It fits mode. that pattern. Yeah. It? And 
And it also fits in with the poetic prophecy that Mananon has given before Bran. And, of course, that story of Imrod Bran, it's in the same text. So yeah. if someone was reading that manuscript, they would have read that prophecy and then they go on to read this, this story. conception story and it just follows on. It, as you said, you know, all this the early stuff is mostly in poetry. Mm. Oh, there's a lot of poetry. Yeah. I mean, maybe it is that the earliest form, the poetry, had sort of become obscure. Mm. I mean, it certainly disturbed the clerics oh, who yes. recorded it. And the clerics didn't even really understand what poetry was in certain circumstances. Yeah, and it's all those glosses, isn't I it? Know, the interpolations yeah. that yeah. demonstrate it. Yeah. And, but the poetry is so rich in decoration mm. and descriptive hyperbole. Yeah. You know, I, I've wondered whether storytellers gradually sort of created incidents that mm. accounted for every aspect of the description about this wonder child. Yeah. Sort of enriching his life story from mm. clues offered in the older poetry. Yes. It's a bit like a hagiography. It is, yeah, it's got very much Same the shape of a, of a hagiography. I mean, what's really so unfortunate is that the end of the prophecy and poetry talks about the death of Mungon. And it does even give glosses suggesting that there's a tale called Azith Mungon, which would be the violent death of Mungon. Mm. It's in some of the tale lists. We don't, we don't have, have it. it. The, the only bit we have is from the poem. Yeah. And the only hint is he's killed by a bastard son. Yes, yeah. That would Possibly seem... a natural son of Fiegna. That's that's totally speculation. speculation. <laughs> the story's gone. But, yeah. it, you know, but it seems to me as though you've got this story and then in the same way that saint stories, a yeah. true folk legend yeah. stories, might have been, would be. Yeah, you know, yeah. Um, I think it's built They've up all in got the same attributed way. to Mungon, yeah. yeah. And that definitely backs up the theory that I've been spouting from the beginning about how the prose tales are built up around the obscure. This is a very good example of poetry. Isn't it? Yeah, this I think so. 14th century tale. Yeah. Mungon does seem to have this characteristic of being this sort of seer poet, uh, the, the wondrous child, the bright child. Yeah. You know, like Fionn, and indeed there's a story that hints that he might be well, Fionn reborn, Fionn but that's that another later. story. And then all the Welsh versions. Exactly, of Gwian and Taliesin, who are the same person. Gwian being completely cognate with Fionn in linguistic terms. Um, but, you know, the child poet who can just immediately spout wisdom as soon as he's born, more yeah. or less. Half in and half out of two worlds. Exactly, yeah, yeah. And of course, Foster... Fostered well, by the great man and on, <laughs> possibly Mither indeed, you know. So this kind of other world fosterage and then, yeah, having that status. Sometimes wise, often foolish. Yeah. It's all of that, isn't it? Yeah. I think we'll have to go into that further when we've explored more of his stories. Yes, and there are more to come and they are great fun. <laughs> just wanted to finish. Yeah. Because I just have to say it, this extended tale is just a gem of storytelling. It is. I said that about Tiger, I still say I it. I know, yes. But this is also a, a, a beautifully constructed story. Yeah. It's full of the richest symbolism. Yeah. And a load of euphemism. Oh, well. God, yeah. <laughs> There's all this folkloric embroidery. Mm. Above all, it's bawdy and tender, but very, very funny. It is. And I, I just think the humour in some of our early literature is lost on a lot of people, especially yeah. with the Victorian translations. No, they don't like it, do no, they? No, no, no. They don't quite get it, I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, where else would you find a tale of venomous were-sheep? <laughs> That's a one-off, That's unique. Well, next time we'll be delving into stories about the rivalry between Mongan and his poets. Oh, yes. Thank you for listening to Ogilith Nanagus, conversations about Irish mythology with the story archaeologists Chris Thompson and Isolde Carmody. For more information or to subscribe, please visit 
www.storyarchaeology.com. You can get in touch via email on the storyarchaeologists at gmail.com.